It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Three years ago, our next guest, Leila Saad, began a 28-day challenge which asked her Instagram followers to own up and share their racist behaviours, however big or small. Leila was looking for truth and she got it. Thousands of people participated in the challenge and began to examine their own white supremacy in the hope of understanding the damage it can cause to others. The Instagram challenge went viral and it led to Leila's new book, Me and White Supremacy, which examines all the elements that contribute either consciously or unconsciously to racism in society. In this conversation, Leila tells Cathy Sheridan why the book is a challenging but necessary read for anyone who wants to make the world a more equal place. Leila, the book began as an article. Um, I need to talk to spiritual white women about white supremacy following the right march in Charlottesville in 2017, which was an abomination, as we know. But obviously, whereas the rest of us were infuriated by everything about it and, and hurt and angry, you felt something altogether deeper, I gather. Yeah, it's interesting because I think so many of us are can experience the same things and have different reactions to it. And for me, it was a, it was a deeply triggering event. Um, it was deeply triggering to see the images of the men, you know, marching in the streets. And in particular, it, it was the look in their eyes. There was a particular look in their eyes that just seemed like pure hatred and pure evil. And I had this moment of realization that that look was directed at people who look like me. That's who it was meant for. And so it just, it kind of just woke me up. It was literally like a a flip being switched within me. And so I was just driven to sit down and write. And what poured out of me was the article that you're referencing. Yes. Um, And that, that is how I got started on this, on this journey was from that, that trigger moment. And the, the article began uh, with, I need to talk to spiritual about white about white supremacy. That was that was the title of it. But tell us about that article because it was written in the white heat of rage, which you posted at three a.m. Layla. So tell us a bit about that article. Yeah, so it was written um, out of yeah, just a, a real sense of anger and grief. Um, who it was addressed to actually was the women in my community. So I was working as a life coach and a business coach uh, to women for women. And it, and it just so happened that the majority of my clients and my followers were actually white women, which I now understand is because those spaces are really dominated by white women. Women of color are often excluded from those spaces as we are for many spaces. 
And so I was addressing it to them. And what I was addressing in particular was what I felt was a great sense of hypocrisy, which was this idea that we're doing work that is about changing the world, healing the world, changing people's lives. But any talk of racism was excluded from that conversation. And so if talk of racism is excluded from that conversation, it means it's only supposed to serve a particular kind of person. And that particular kind of person is a white person. And so that's that's where that was born from. So what's interesting, Leila, is you were challenging every white woman in the world. None of us get off. Right. And it's funny you say that because I really didn't, when I was writing the article, I didn't see it that way. I was just writing it to the women in my community. I had a, a small community. I had an email um, subscribers list of about 400 and I shared it with them. I shared it on my Facebook. Didn't think it would go much further than that. But of course, what happened was that it went super, super viral um, with hundreds of thousands of people reading it. An early sign of how challenging that was for you, Leila, and for friends of yours who are reading it was that a very good friend of yours checked out of the friendship when she read, oh, yeah. I need to talk to spiritual white women. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it was probably one of the most painful parts of the journey. I'd been best friends with this person um, who was a white woman for, for quite a number of years. And we um, were both entrepreneurs. We talked every week. Um, she lived in the UK. I lived here in Qatar. We were, you know, on the phone every week, you know, messaging each other every day. Um, but when I started writing about this particular topic about white supremacy and asking white women to look at it, she just sort of receded out of my life. She didn't check in. She saw the kind of vitriol that I was receiving online and never asked if I was okay, never showed up to defend me. Um, just, it must have been, now that I have hindsight, um, I can see that it must have been very triggering for her. Um, and for and she didn't know what to do. And when I asked her about it, her response to me was that, "You well, you have Black women who are showing up for you, so I, I figured you didn't need me. Mm. Um, which was very upsetting to me because yeah. why, why, you know, I, we've been friends all these years and I've, I've been through other heavy things that, you know, things such as, you know, my, my kids being in hospital and stuff and she's not a parent, but she knew how to show up for me for that but she didn't know how to show up for me for this. Well, we'll talk about white fragility in a little while. But first of all, tell us then what happened. So you, this, this went viral online. And then what happened? Yes. So the, the article went viral online. Um, it initiated me into this very public conversation about, around white supremacy. And every day I was having conversations and very heated conversations with, with white people, mainly white women online about white supremacy, getting them to understand that this wasn't a personal attack, but rather, you know, I was asking them to look at that this thing that they that we're all conditioned into. It was very hard for them and it was very hard for me. It was very exhausting for me. Um, but when I, you know, I sort of fast forward a year later and I had noticed that it had become easier for them to have the conversation, for white people to have the conversation without being as triggered. That is when I started asking myself, what's changed? What have they learned? And that's how the Instagram challenge was born out of this question. What have you learned about you and white supremacy? And tell us about the Instagram challenge. 
Yes. So, you know, one night I'm trying to fall asleep and I start reflecting, as I said, on what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy. And I, I grab my phone and I just start writing all of these prompts because I knew that this question, what have you learned about white supremacy was is so big. And so I needed to break it down. What does it look like? Well, white supremacy looks like tone policing, white fragility, white privilege, cultural appropriation, and so on and so forth. And suddenly I had dozens of these prompts. And so I, I shared this post online on my Instagram page saying, we're going to do this 28-day challenge called You and White Supremacy. And anyone who has white privilege, um, you know, you're invited to this work. Um, we're going to be looking at how this shows up in your life personally. And so over the course of 28 days, I ran this challenge on my Instagram page for free. You know, there's no registration process or anything. People were just able to join as and when they wanted. My only requirement was that they started at day one. And um, and it, and that too went viral. I started off with 19,000 followers on my Instagram page. By the end of the 28 days, that number had more than doubled. We had people joining every single day into the challenge. And what I did, it was a very simple formula. I highlighted a particular topic. So say it was um, white fragility. And I would explain what white fragility is and how it shows up using examples. And then I would say, well, how does this show up for you? How, what have you learned about how you exhibit white fragility? And people would journal their responses underneath each post. And it was a very, um, people really dove deep. People really, you know, really were telling the truth about how they showed up with these aspects of white supremacy. It was a very powerful experience. It's it's amazing, Leila, because it's not something, it's not one of those redemptive things where you submit it to a teacher or a mentor and you get gold stars. I mean, this is between yourself right. and your conscience. And you set out various right. challenges, which are in themselves very uncomfortable and, and, and yes. thankless, unless you're happy to say to yourself, wow, I see now what this is all about. Unless right. you have the absolute honesty with yourself to say that at the end right. of the 28 days, there is nothing in this for the person who takes it on. That's right. And I talk about this in the book. I talk about how this isn't like doing other kind of what you may consider personal development work. In fact, it isn't personal development work. It's anti-racism work. And if you hold white privilege, you're going to find this work intimidating. You're going to find it overwhelming. You're going to find it unrewarding because the more you wake up to the ways that you're unconsciously, you know, have racist thoughts and beliefs, the more you actually lose. You don't win. There's no, there's no gold star at the end. There's no prize at the end. There's no certificate. But what you do win is that you become a way, aware of the ways in which you may be harming people. And so you're able to, to change your behavior. And so you get to live your life according to your actual values. If your actual values are, I believe people should be treated equally. I believe that people should not be treated differently based on their race. And I don't want to be a part of a system that treats people differently because of their race. That's what this work will help you to do. Um, but that means, you know, because we, we live in a time where people are so used to getting the pat on the back or the instant reaction or that, you know, that dopamine endorphin hit, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and the, this is the opposite, actually. <laughs> this is not that kind of work. You, you know, many people, many people actually report feeling very um report even feeling more racist as they do the work. And 
actually, they're not more racist. They're just aware of the racism that was always there. Yes. And so that's a good feeling, right? (laughs) Well, it it, it is. You do feel you're being targeted at a very personal level. um, And that even though we never thought for a second we were white supremacists, which is a name that I always associate with the Ku Klux Klan and the Charlottesville March and those men with the torches and hate in their eyes. And suddenly you're saying you are one of those. I think that's what I found hardest to get over in this, Leila. Yeah. And I think if if people who hold white privilege can get over that part, right, then they can get into really showing up as allies for people of color. Because the real, the real hurdle for many um, white people who consider themselves not racist is that it's the idea of being called racist, which feels like the hardest hit. Yes. And that the the kind of reality check I want to give to that is being called racist is still not as bad as being impacted by racism. And so if you can own the fact that, first of all, that racism isn't this binary thing where the good people are the not racist and the bad people are the racist. It doesn't, that's not what this is about. It's not about your intention. It's about the fact that white supremacy is a, is a system of oppression that has impacted all of us in different ways. If you're white or hold white privilege, it's impacted you, you in ways where you have where you ha- have white privilege, which basically means, um, and this is a term that was defined by Peggy McIntosh as meaning that you can walk through your life with this invisible package of, of assets that you don't even know that you have that the way that you're able to live your life is not negatively impacted by your race. Um, And if you don't, if you're not white, if you're like me, you're black, you're impacted by white supremacy in ways that teach you, tell you, condition you to believe that you are lesser than, that you are inferior to white people. And so if people who hold white privilege, people who are white can accept that this system has impacted me, and these are the ways that is, is it, it has impacted me. And if I can understand that it's not about whether I'm a good person or not a good person, but rather that I've been impacted by something that has taught me things I hadn't even realized from day one, then I can start showing up better for people of color. Okay. Now, you actually turned this into a book, which is why, why we're talking to one another today. But first of all, tell us about yourself. Where did you come from? Mm. So I uh, was born and you wouldn't tell it, you couldn't tell it now, but I was actually born and grew up in Wales. You start so I have a, a, no, you I had a Welsh accent for the first like nine, 10 years of my life. Um, my parents were immigrants to Wales. So my father's from Kenya, my mother's from Zanzibar and they met in Wales um, where they uh, moved there for studies. Um, so I was born there and my siblings were born there. So we're first gen- generation, my siblings and I. And I grew up um, going to schools that were mainly Roman Catholic. Um, and the reason for that was that my parents felt that they those schools were better. They felt that the education was better, the discipline was better. Um, but the rub is that I'm Muslim. So I was always the only Muslim kid in, in, this, in a hijab. You know, in a hijab? Not in a hijab, no, but, you know, we're practicing Muslims. Yes. So at home, you know, 
praying, we're fasting, we're doing, you know, we're doing our Muslim thing, right? Okay. But at school, uh, we're we're also praying, right? We're we're singing hymns, uh, going to mass <laughs> each week, um, and so I was always very aware of my difference. Like I would come home and say, "Well, we need to say grace," and my mom would have to explain to me, "Well, we don't say grace because we're not, you know, we're we're not Christian." Um, and so I, I always grew up knowing that I was different. I was always one of if only a handful of kids of color. And I was also only the Muslim kid. Uh, and so I was always very aware of, of my difference. Did you, um, did you feel then, discriminated against at that point, Leila? Or did you just think I'm, you know, I, I, there are differences, but no one cares or was it terrible? I think it wasn't terrible, but I, it doesn't need to be terrible in order to feel in order to for you to feel othered. You don't have to be called a racial slur in order to feel the slight ways in which you're treated differently. And that's the other thing that I want people with white privilege to understand that it doesn't have to be that outright, very violent, very in your face racism in order for it to be racism. Right. So I was always very aware that I wouldn't get chosen for stuff because I was black. Like I just knew it. And then when I was um, seven, my mom sat me down and, and spoke to me and had a conversation with which many parents of color have with their children, which is that, you know, Leila, you're, you're black, you're Muslim, you're, you're a girl, you know, you're going to have these three things working against you in this, in this life, because that's how people treat people who have those identities. And so you're going to have to work three times as hard to make up for these three things. And, and, and it was with the understanding that not to work three times as hard to be treated as if you're three times better, but just to be treated as equal to those who are working just at that regular level. Um, and so with that in your mind all the time, it, it, it just in, you know, it really drives home that sense of not enough, not good enough. And there may be people who, maybe listening and saying, well, that was a terrible thing for her mom to say to her. But actually, that's what many kids of color are told. And parents have to tell us those things for our survival, for us to for us to understand how the world actually is. And that's when we when I talk about what white privilege is, white privilege means if you are white, your parent never had to have that conversation with you. Mm. That certainly was a very interesting start. Now, at the same time, Leila, you're not the child of enslaved ancestors. You don't now That's live right. in a white supremacist society. I don't know if the people around you look like you in Qatar, but you don't feel mm -hmm. you are in among familiar looking people, I presume, are you? Yes. So Qatar is a very is, is very international mm. um, and it's not a white supremacist society, but we live in a global society. So all of my work is global. I'm a globally read uh, author. I'm a globally sought speaker. I'm a global, globally listened to podcast host. And so it's white supremacy impacts me all the time. Um, and, and also it's important for people to remember that white supremacy isn't country specific either. It, it's not just held by, I mean, oftentimes other countries will say, well, at least we're not like America, right? And yeah. not understand ways in which colonization has, effect, has affected the entire world um, and, and things of that nature. And so what I want people to understand is, you know, you live in Ireland, which by the way, Ireland is like one of my favorite places on earth. Oh, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh thank you. <laughs> my husband is Irish, so I, I love Ireland. Um, really? But, you know, 
Yes, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and if I did, yes, he's amazing. Um, And honestly, if I had to live here, probably Ireland is one of the places I would consider living because I just love it there. Um, But when you leave, when you leave Ireland and you go somewhere else, you don't get to leave your whiteness behind. Wherever you go in the world, you are treated as if you're better than people of color. And so I want people to understand that, that it's, we don't live in these, um, we don't live in countries where we never move or we never interact with people of other races. We're living in a globalized, globally connected world. So we're impacted all the time. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. You've now settled in Qatar, but but as as you point out, your reach is global indeed. Now, Leila, let's get into a little bit of detail in your book and the various issues that, as I say, converge uh, to create this. Actually, what to me was a, a, a terrible picture of almost hopelessness. Um, these 12 issues that begin with white privilege and move on to white fragility. Can you talk to us a bit about those mm. separate issues and tell us a bit about each of them and how you get people to address them who are very reluctant to address them? Yeah, so it's actually it's actually a 28-day process. So it's a month-long um it's a month long process. Uh, that being said, it doesn't need to be finished in a month. And I want to make that really clear um, because if people, you know, feel like I need to get it done in that time, then they're sort of thinking of anti-racism as this one and done thing. You do it in 28 days and then it's over. Um, but that's not how this works. This is lifelong anti-racism work. And I actually break it down. So it's seven, so it's 28 days, which I break down into four, four weeks, so seven days um, per week. And the first week is is called the basics. And we look at things, you know, words that you might have heard, things like white privilege, white fragility. And I, I lay out what those things are. So we don't even, in the first week, we don't even start looking at things like racist stereotypes or things of that nature. And that's very intentional. Um, I think that people who consider themselves not racist if the first thing that I'm asking them to look at is things like anti-blackness and racist stereotypes, they immediately will shut down. Yeah. And they will immediately not shut down, not because they don't want to do the work, but because they just so don't understand what white supremacy is. And so shut down because they don't want to be associated with something so awful. Um, and so what I do is I actually outline a few other things before we even get into that stuff so that you begin to understand This isn't about being a good person or being a bad person. This isn't about things that you're consciously choosing even. This is about behaviors and things that you're not aware of, but they're right there under the surface and they make up the basics of white supremacy. So we look at that first. And then in the second week, that's when we go into the other stuff. So we look at anti-Blackness, racial stereotypes, and cultural appropriation. And this is the heavy week. This is a really, really heavy week because I'm asking you to look at how you view people of other races and there will still be resistance here even though we did the first week for the basics there's there will still be resistance here especially if your friends are people of color your family members are people of color your co-workers are people of color because you don't want to necessarily believe that you see them that way but it's really important to dig into the work here because actually 
for me, I, I can say this for myself, and I believe it's true for many of the, the people of color and black people that I know. For the white people in my life, the more that they are aware and accepting of the fact that they that they do carry unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs, the safer they actually are for me to be around them. It's when they don't want to think about how they may hold those thoughts and beliefs, that's when they actually become dangerous for me to be around because they can unconsciously show up and do something racist and not be able to look at it because they just don't want to accept that that's inside of them. Can you give us Does an that make sense? It does, but give us an example, Leila, can you? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I can give you an example. Well, let's use the example of my, you know, my friend who we are no longer friends. Um, she was unwilling to look at her own relationship with white supremacy. And so because she was unwilling, she couldn't show up for me. She just couldn't show up for me. If she had been willing to say, hey, maybe this also applies to me and maybe I need to look at this and maybe I need to have a conversation with Layla about this, you know, we could have then gone deeper into our relationship together because I would have felt like she understands that in our relationship with her being white and me being black, there is the potential for her to do harm to me, even though she doesn't realize it. But if she can bring it up into the conversation and we can have an honest conversation about it, that actually makes things safer. But if she just shuts down, refuses to look at it, then I don't know where I stand with her anymore. I don't know if I matter to her enough for her to actually look at this. Did she think your tone was harsh, Leila? I don't know. She couldn't articulate to me. Because they, I, I, I found different pieces intriguing. The one about tone policing, I actually found very interesting because I have found um, a lot of the stuff on social media in recent years very difficult to deal with. And I just tune out um, if, if somebody's yeah. aggressive or shouty or any of those things. For my own sanity, I tune them out. And that's why I found that particular uh, piece very interesting. Uh, you think that, you, you call that tone policing. Yes. Yeah, so the way that I invite people who have white privilege to understand this is being impacted by racism, being on the receiving end of racism is painful, it's hard, it's violent. To expect people of color not to be upset about it is to ask us to dehumanize ourselves. It's to ask us not to feel human emotions. So if you've been hurt by racism and then white people are saying, tell us about it, but don't tell us in an angry way, what does that say? Yes. Uh, it's like, it's, it's the same as asking any victim of any, of, of any harm, tell us what happened to you, but take any emotion that may trigger me or upset me out of it. And you reckon that's the way forward, that, that people should be able to show their anger that it shouldn't shut us, that it shouldn't shut down our recognition of the content of that anger, even though we may be slightly put off by the tone? Yes, because once again, being slightly put off by the tone is still not equivalent to experiencing the pain of racism. It's just not equivalent. And so when white people say, it's just too hard for me and I tune out, again, like... I, I, I guess sometimes it's easier to give it to give the example in a in a way that um, white women can better understand. It's the same as when white women are harmed by sexism 
and they get angry and frustrated because they're not paid the same, they're treated differently. And they say, and, and men will say, tell us about it, but please don't, don't be shouty. Don't be a shouty feminist <laughs> <Yes>. about it. <laughs> yeah. We had that conversation here this, just before you came on, actually. We were, right. we were, we were making exactly that comparison. And Leila, tell right. us, white fragility, which is, mm-hmm. uh, seems to me to be a kind of answer to a lot of things that I don't necessarily yeah. agree with. So if I come back and say to you, oh, no, now, I'm not sure about that. The answer is, well, you're just white and fragile and you just can't take the truth. Well, let, OK, so let's define define what white fragility is. I think that would be helpful. Um, and th- this is a, a phrase that was co- coined by Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the book about it. And she talks about it as a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. And this can look like shutting down. This can look like getting angry. This can look like tuning out. This can look like crying. It looks different in, in, in different ways. The context within when we're talking about racial conversations, if I as a woman of color say this is a racist thing or this is this is an example of racism or this is how I experience racism, if a white person says, no, I, I don't think that's what it is, I don't think that's what it is. How do you know yes. when you haven't been, how do you know what is racist and what isn't when you are not the one who's experiencing it? And so that reaction oftentimes comes from um white people from a very young age and throughout their lifetime not ha- not being taught how to have nuanced conversations around race the conversation around race for most white people is we don't see color there's only one race the human race and the racists are the bad people and if you're a good person you're not a racist that's about it mm-hmm. White people are not taught taught about institutional systemic racism, are not taught about the history and impact of colonization, are not taught about how you can be conditioned into something without even realizing it. That's the more complex conversation that needs to be had. And so when white people shut the conversation down really early and are not willing to dig deeper, yes, that's often a sign of white fragility. And that fragility, again, isn't a personal indictment it's a reflection of the fact that you don't have the skills to be able to have more nuanced conversations about race because you were not given those skills as a young person. Right. And Leila, this this list of things I have in front of me, they include white fragility, tone policing, white privilege, white silence, which, as you say, is exactly yeah. what it sounds like. It's when people with white privilege stay complicitly silent when it comes to issues of race which is what happened with your friend, I think. White exceptionalism, yeah. uh, which is a huge one. It's a, it's a belief that you are a white person, as a white, are exempt from white supremacy, that you're one of the good ones. This is actually probably key to your work. Uh, Colour blindness, uh, cultural appropriation. Now, this has mm-hmm. become quite a controversial issue in recent times, as we know. Just talk to me a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah. So with cultural appropriation, which is a question that comes up often for sure, um, sometimes people are, the question is, how do I know if this is cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation or cultural sharing? Yes. Yes. Um, Right. That's one of the main questions that's asked. And, um, you know, a lot of times people want sort of a, a checklist. Is this cultural appropriation? Yes, no. And I'll just do the things that are not, you know, just tell me what isn't cultural appropriation and that's what I'll do. 
And, and that, again, it simplifies things in a way that just doesn't reflect what's actually going on. So the bigger question to answer is not, is this particular thing, yes or no, cultural appropriation, but rather, what is the relationship that exists between your culture and the culture from which you are, you know, this, this cultural artifact comes from? Is the relationship between those two cultures historically one of equality or has there been a relationship that has included genocide, discrimination, colonization, enslavement, land theft, you know, um, uh, racist uh, discriminatory laws? You know, what, what has been the relationship between those two cultures? If the relationship has included those things, it means that one culture is dominant over the other. And where you have a relationship of dominance, you do not have equality. It's like a bully saying to a victim, I'm going to take this thing from you, and that's us sharing. And the other party doesn't, cannot say, no, this is not sharing because they are being dominated. So that's the bigger question to ask. And within that context, then you can begin to ask questions like, okay, if I'm, t- if I'm using this thing from the, this culture, Who's getting paid for it? Are white people getting paid for it or are the people from this culture getting paid for it? If I'm using this thing from this culture, do I actually understand the actual um, uh, like cultural significance of its sacredness? So when we were talking about in, in the um, I need to talk to spiritual white women letter, you know, a lot of the things that I was referencing is in the, the fact is, a lot of indigenous practices and practices from black and brown cultures are often taken by white people and used as these exotic sacred practices, but their history is erased from it. Give me an example of that, Leila. Yeah. So, so for example, in, in the, uh, in, in, in the United States, I was recently visiting a, a museum there and it was, it's called the Heard Museum. It was in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's for the advancement of Indian arts. And upstairs they had a, like an exhibition um, that was all about the boarding schools that they had there. So when they would take young um, native children from their families and put them into these schools and essentially strip them of their culture completely, cut their hair off, remove their clothing, and essentially try and make them into white people. And that was very explicitly the policy. And they were banned from speaking their own languages. They were banned from practicing their own spirituality or using anything from their culture. And so now we have a a whole industry, a whole spiritual wellness industry that is built on using indigenous practices, indigenous tools, things like saging, you know, things of that nature. But those people were banned from practicing their own religion. And so now in the modern day, when those practices are used, the people who benefit from them are not the indigenous people from whom those artifacts belong. They are often made by white people, sold by white people, but what is capitalized on is the sort of quote unquote exoticness of this coming from an indigenous practice. Okay, that's a pretty comprehensive answer, Leila. Now, look... If I, I think you've covered a lot of ground and you've explained many, many things. And in the end, this book is, I, I fear it won't get to the people who should read it. 
So how, if I were to give you a couple of sentences to explain why people should read this book, what would you say? First of all, what I will say is this book debuted in its first week on the New York Times bestsellers list. So it is reaching people. Um, When we did the Instagram challenge from which it was incepted from, you know, as I said, you know, the numbers there of the people, the number of people who joined when it became a free PDF workbook, a hundred thousand people downloaded it. And now it's, it's a hardcover book that debuted on the New York times bestsellers list. Everyone who has white privilege, I believe needs to do this work, but I know that everyone who has white privilege is not willing to do this work. And so I didn't write it for everyone. I wrote it for the people who do see themselves as liberal minded or progressive and want to live in a way that is anti-racist, but don't necessarily know how to do so. That is who I wrote it for, because you have to have a willingness to do the work. The book, as you've said, you know, it's not written in a very comfortable way. It's not, um, it's very direct. It's not, I'm I'm not trying to condemn or attack, but I think it's very important to, to name things as they are so that we can understand them better. Um, and so my hope is that those people who are willing to pick it up, buy it and do the work can have the conversations with the other white people in their life who are maybe more resistant to the conversation because it's not the job of black people and people of color to convince those people that this is real, that this work needs to be done. But part of using your white privilege means being willing to do the work yourself and then having those conversations with those people. Leila said, thank you very, very much indeed. That was extremely enlightening. I have read the book and I will go back and read it again um, with your spoken thoughts in my head. We very much appreciate your time today on the Women's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our guest, Leila Saad. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can always email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 